0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And so I want to jump right in. But first, can you introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan?
1: It's a pleasure to be here and chat with you today about my research. My name is Vita Pivo, and I'm a postdoctoral scholar with the Michigan Society of Fellows, uh, which is this interdisciplinary community and a postdoctoral fellowship. So junior and senior fellows from across the university from different disciplines get to work together and share their research and kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Um, So that's been a really nice community to be a part of. And then I'm also an assistant professor of architecture in the Talmud College of Architecture and Urban Planning, where I teach uh, history courses um, that have a kind of theoretical political spin. So they kind of deal with infrastructure and power with materials and manufacturing, as well as these uh, kind of intersecting histories of architecture and capitalism.
0: Fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about your areas of interest and the areas in which your research focuses?
1: Sure, yeah. So my background is in architectural design, uh, and then I, you know, did a stint in an architecture firm and realized this is not what I wanted to do, Uh, and I was really interested in kind of broader questions and thinking about the way that architecture is a kind of um, opportunity to have these bigger social political conversations. And that architecture is a kind of language through which like we have these conversations. So I did my PhD in American studies where I specialized in architectural and urban history, but also science and technology studies and history of capitalism. My goal is to kind of really rethink how we think about architecture, um, that it's not just a building, it's not just an urban issue, it's not just a, a construction site. And so my goal is to kind of expand the purview of architecture and the lens that we have for studying architecture from just the building and the site to include also the manufacturing of construction materials, uh, the construction process itself, but also where um, the demolished buildings go. So where does the debris go? And so through my work by expanding this lens, I really show that uh, architectural production is not just an issue of design, it's really an issue Uh, of kind of slavery, of colonialism, of climate change. So architectural production intersects with all of these really interesting, important histories in a very critical way. But we haven't really unpacked that as much in the field because we focus so much on designers.
0: Wow, that is so interesting. So there's a current project that you have um, called A World Casting Concrete, How the U.S. Built Its Empire. Can you talk a little bit
1: about that? Sure. Yeah. So A World Casting Concrete, uh, How the U.S. Built Its Empire, is my first book project, and it comes from my dissertation research um, that really thinks about concrete not just as an aesthetic material or even an architectural material but really a material of empire. And so I basically track uh, the birth of the industry in the U.S. in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. And then I look at its expansion into the U.S. South, imperialism in the global South, and then uh, this kind of neocolonialism in outer space. So it's it's sort of a big scale project, but it really thinks about the transformation of this material in different geographical contexts and across history and time. And it thinks about uh, agency in a really different way. So I don't just look at architects or builders, I really look at cement plants and I look at quarries and I look at kind of all different types of bodies that engaged in manufacturing this material. And so the argument is that is that these particular forms of manufacture changed local labor conditions across the world. So it's not just kind of design that changes the local landscape, it's also how we make things. And so by you know my argument is that the us. basically exported this form of manufacture to shade building cultures across the world. And it has, you know that process has had really severe consequences both for kind of labor but also for climate change. Um, So cement is the second most consumed material on Earth after water, and it produces more uh, CO2 than the trucking industry or the aviation industry, which is really quite surprising. And so um, the journal Nature came out with a statistic recently that basically now anthropogenic mass, which is mass produced by humans, now exceeds all biomass on Earth, and concrete is a huge chunk of that human-produced mass. So, it's really critical to understand how our addiction to this material is not just an issue of like cost or even technology is really it's a cultural issue, and it's a political issue. So, my project really traces this this kind of deeper root, uh, <laughs> this kind of deeper commitment to this material beyond aesthetics and beyond kind of appearances.
0: And you recently joined the Conversations podcast to talk about the ways in which architects are using traditional architectural designs, as opposed to modern styles, to keep buildings cool as places around the world continue to experience extreme heat. So can you explain some of those different methods or materials that are being used that are better suited to keep buildings cool?
1: Yeah, so... That podcast was a really neat kind of global conversation about construction practices and politics of construction and the way in which I think we generally kind of feel like things are improving, we're making progress, we're doing things better. But in many ways, the way that we build is not determined necessarily by the best methods, but really kind of by politics. Um, So You know what I talk about in the podcast is the way that um, the concrete industry has become a kind of monopoly and has really pushed this material into different zoning codes, codes, and other kind of legal infrastructures that define how and what gets built and where. Um, So it's not so much that concrete is the best material; it's really kind of the easiest material and sort of almost the mandatory material to work with in many cases. And so because concrete has, in some ways, has been like shoved down our throats and we kind of have to use it, we've uh, failed to really um, engage with a lot of different material alternatives and uh, alternative possibilities and a lot of vernacular architecture or sort of architecture that is more traditional and community-based and less kind of design Architect, you know, capital A uh, based, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge in terms of how to work in specific climates with specific materials, with specific kind of construction technologies and practices. And a lot of those histories and, you know, have been lost because of this kind of dominance of industry, of kind of big, big manufacturing industry. Um, So some of the architects talked about sort of just design techniques so you can integrate the building into the existing landscape. So using kind of vegetation to provide shade, uh, using natural materials that absorb heat better. Um, So I'm a big fan of kind of compressed brick um, and compressed dirt as a way to do it. Um, One of the architects was talking about installing these um, Vertical wells uh, that essentially allow cool air to come into the building without having to rely on air conditioning or other kind of uh, mechanical sort of systems that we are so used to in the West. And that's part of that's a really different way of thinking about architecture as not being um, something that is isolated and self contained, but as something that is part of a landscape. On many levels. So, part of a cultural landscape, part of a labor landscape, part of an environmental landscape. And so, I think it's really crucial to make that transition in order to make buildings sustainable and really to recognize that they need to be part of, you know, a building is part of uh, our bodies in some ways. A building is part of a block. A building is part of a neighborhood. A building is part of a city, of an entire region. So, the more we can break down these barriers, I think the more we can. Uh, improve how we build for um, a really rapidly changing and unpredictable climate.
0: And so really diving back into um, the conversation and the information that you were sharing about concrete specifically, have you seen a shift at all in the cultural meaning or in
1: the use of concrete in architectural design? I think for my research and study, I think there's a kind of intensification of existing ideas about concrete on the one hand, and and then a kind of expansion of other ideas about how concrete is made or how cement is made. So for example, you know, when concrete emerged uh, as a kind of key building material in the late 19th century, it was sort of marketed and advertised as a really unique scientific medium. So it wasn't, you know, like the the garbage brick or wood <laughs> or stone, uh, you know that you quarry from the woods or from the land. You know it was a concrete was really a scientific material made in the laboratory and it was tested, and it, you know it was sort of measured and it was predictable. Um, and so that was kind of the 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 spiel, <laughs> you know. But that wasn't really accurate. It was really more advertising. Um, And so this was an effort to really separate concrete from other types of materials and show that this is the medium of modernity. So I think concrete has always been this kind of perpetually modern material um, without a history, uh, but it it does have a history. (laughs) But I think oftentimes as we continue to use concrete and to talk about concrete, it continues to function as this kind of um, a material like without a character. It sort of can perform like stone, but it can also look like plastic. There's all of these different iterations of concrete. So I think this kind of assumption that it continues to be a perpetually modern material without a history, without a location, it kind of can be anything, has continued to reinforce this idea that um, there is no history here. But actually, like I explained in my project, it is a deeply historical, material embedded in really kind of problematic, uh, transplanetary even histories. And it's important to understand um, that as we continue to rely on this medium, we continue to perpetuate some of these kind of existing issues in terms of like labor, in terms of social justice, environmental justice. I, I continue to see this sort of historical amnesia <laughs> pop up um, uh, today as much as it, as it did historically. And I think part of it is because we don't understand how um, a lot of this idea about concrete being scientific it was like kind of propaganda. Something else that is interesting recently, again, kind of in some ways it's always been um, a global material, but I think people usually assume that concrete is like very heavy. There's no way that, you know, this is a global material. It must be local, it must be kind of shipped in from like the nearby location. But now, uh, much like with textiles, you know we are able to separate the industry on the global scale. So it's no longer as local of a medium as I think we imagine. So that's a, a really interesting uh, kind of geographical dynamic too, where you know even though from the beginning cement manufacturers wanted to ship their material, they had all kinds of different challenges to deal with from packaging to literally how do you ship this medium, <laughs> you know, across the world and why <laughs> if you can make it locally. But now with labor regulations and environmental regulations, it in some cases makes sense to separate the manufacturing process into different stages. So for example, to make cement, you have to extract limestone and burn it at really high temperatures. And this her- this burning process produces a lot of CO2, and that's kind of the harmful part of the cement manufacturing process. But there are ways to separate this chain. So you could extract limestone in one place, and burn it in another place and then mill it in even another place. <laughs> so there's now this very interesting global scale that totally changes who can make cement and where. And so you don't have to you know you don't have to make it and use it in the same place. So the kind of geopolitical dynamics are really fascinating where you can essentially export pollution and move it to particular countries that don't have those same types of regulations that we do in some western countries. And so sort of who gets to use cement and who makes it uh, now are kind of two different sides of the, this, you know, the, the chain. Thank you
0: so much. I want to uh, change course for a quick moment because you were recently named a University of Michigan Public Art and Engagement Fellow by the Arts Initiative. So congratulations. Thank you. And. What was your reaction to finding out that you were one of the eight who were selected?
1: I was so thrilled. I think the initiative is uh, absolutely amazing. The initiative brings together scholars from across campus, from different disciplines, and we basically engage with the Monument Lab out of Philadelphia to study public monuments and memorials, both in Michigan but also on like a national and global scales. And um, Uh, My work is always engaged with the public space. I've always been kind of public facing. It's important for me because, you know, literature on concrete is either scientific or kind of designy. So I've always been bridging the two by like reaching out to workers, interviewing cement manufacturers, really going and seeing how this process is completed. And so for my work to be legible, like I really want the workers to understand what I'm talking about and to kind of see themselves in this history too. And so it's really nice to connect to other scholars on campus who have the same commitment to kind of communicating with the general public, but also a commitment to kind of rethinking everyday environments around us and really kind of digging deep and kind of uncovering the layers of stories that, you know, are just everywhere.
0: And with that, How will the fellowship help advance this work and help you engage with the public and with other experts, as you were saying, and what do you hope to gain from the experience?
1: So I, you know, applied for this fellowship in some ways for kind of biographical reasons, because I grew up in Lithuania, surrounded by Soviet monuments. (laughs) So it's sort of a different kind of connection to, you know, monumentality and memorialization. But at the same time, you know, concrete, as I mentioned before, like is a key material that's used in a lot of monuments and memorials. And part of it is because it is the sort of, it can express all kinds of different emotions and it can, it, it can be stone, it can be wood, it can really represent different types of landscapes. And I'm just kind of curious about the... The sort of political economy of producing memorials. So, like what where does the cement come from? <laughs> so it's sort of my classic Vita question: where is the cement coming from? Who makes it? <laughs> you know, so I'm really, I'm really curious about that, the sort of the politics, not just of the memorials, but of who actually makes it and what materials we use. And then again, it's kind of this continuation of this sort of historical amnesia about concrete. So concrete is used to memorialize particular events but concrete itself has a history and it itself has a politics so how do those two come together you know how do we think about them together but also separately and another uh, big interest of mine is kind of is really thinking about you know in my own research i think about agency in a really broad way so agency not of just of human workers or human manufacturers and human builders but also non-human agency and sort of the role that animals or landscapes or even the concrete, the material itself has had on shaping history, on shaping how uh, the material evolved over time. So, and, you know, in the case of this um, fellowship, I'm really curious about how do we think about um, memorials in the context of climate change? And, you know, so I think now there's a lot of conversations about the rights of nature, the rights of, Oceans and so how you know memorials have always been this kind of human based endeavor where we um, memorialize uh, and commemorate particular human events or you know wars or some conflicts, but how do we think about memorialization in the context of the Anthropocene, Um, how do we memorialize uh, lost uh, ice caps you know so or just you know. different species that are extinct now. So I think there's a lot of really interesting questions about sort of catching up to these broader conversations about agency that the study of public space, the study of public art could really productively engage with.
0: So before we wrap up, because unfortunately we are running out of time, I like to ask each expert who comes on Michigan Minds for one takeaway for the audience. If everyone were to remember one thing from the information that you've shared today, what would you want that to be?
1: I want your listeners and folks in general to understand and know and keep in mind that concrete has a history and it has a politics and it has a culture. And so every time you walk on a sidewalk or walk into a building that is built of concrete, keep, you know, ask, where did the cement come from? (laughs) My classic question. I think it's really productive to think about materials in that way, that they're not um, abstract, or they're not um, history less or story less. Um, It's it's just a matter of putting them into focus as we think about uh, our history and our kind of culture.
0: Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap up?
1: I don't think so. I think this was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the chat and the great questions.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag umichimpact.